together. So let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for the wonderful opportunity again to open up your holy word. We don't ever approach it with, uh, Lord, um, a lack of sobriety and excitement and anticipation that you're going to do great things as we hear from you and as we apply ourselves to your truth. Father, give us spiritual eyes to see wonderful things from your word, we pray. Pray that you would continue to be with those who are sick amongst us, even home right now. That you would continue to bring your people to full healing so that they would continue to serve you, Father, faithfully. And uh, Father, thank you for those times when we do get sick so that we will be able to contemplate your goodness in our lives and even pause uh, to reflect upon uh, how kind you have been to us, especially this holiday season. May you bless the preaching the hearing and the application of your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We'll open your Bibles, brethren, to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. If you're able to stand with me in honor of God's word, please do so. Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 through 16 is our text. So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, Not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you both to will and to work for His good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent, children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you appear as lights in the world, holding fast the the word of life, So that in the day of Christ I will have reason to glory, because I did not run in vain, nor toil in vain. And the Lord bless the reading of His Word. You may be seated. Well, this is the fourth and final message of a mini-series we've been doing as we've been walking through the letter of Philippians, as you know, titled Ingredients for Gospel Unity. We've already seen a few weeks ago that the first ingredient that we must cultivate in our lives, if we're going to preserve gospel unity, is cultivating selfless humility. Without humility, gospel unity is impossible. We saw that from chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. Then building on that, the second ingredient that we contemplated and considered was that of emulating the example of Christ. Right? We cannot walk in unity um, if we're not following after the steps of our Lord Jesus. That was Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. And so we come now to verses 12 through 16 to one further ingredient of gospel unity And that is the essential ingredient of pursuing holiness. Pursuing holiness. It should go without saying, brethren, that without an aggressive, proactive, and relentless pursuit of holiness in your life as a believer, unity is always going to be a challenge for you. If even even an impossibility. We are striving by God's grace to be like Christ in attitude and action. And we're going to Um, If we're not striving to do that, we're going to lack the spiritual vitality and the spiritual perspective to be preserving unity with one another. This is why often in counseling over the years, whether it's personal counseling or marriage counseling or even uh, church conflict kind of counseling, inevitably we always go back to the ABCs in those counseling meetings. I have often asked people after uh, much um, inquiring, you know, how's your walk with Christ going, I'll ask. How's your time in God's Word and in prayer? Are you submitting, not only reading the Word of God, but are you, are you submitting in obedience to the Word of God? 
And most importantly, what I'll often ask is, are you seeking to be like Christ? Are you walking in holiness before the Lord? You see, by and large, the reason why we should ask those questions of one another even in love is if, it's because if, if those means of grace are lacking in our lives and we are not pursuing holiness and sanctification before the Lord, it's going to show itself in fleshly, divisive type of living and in our relationships. Our relationships will be constantly strained. Holiness, brethren, is critical. Critical. I want you to see this in First Peter chapter 2. Go there a few pages to your right to First Peter chapter 2. To see the high priority that God places on your personal pursuit of holiness as a Christian. First Peter chapter 2 and verse 14. As obedient children, Peter writes, Do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance, but, on the other hand, like the Holy One who called you, be holy in all your, also in all your behavior, because it is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy. Of course, that is God speaking there, right? You're no longer that old person. You're no longer that old you. Live in accordance with who you are now in Christ. Be holy. Be set apart. Go to your right a few pages to 1 John chapter 3. 1 John chapter 3 and verse 2. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when He appears, we will be like Him, like Jesus, because we will see Him just as He is. And ready for this? Everyone who has this hope fixed on Jesus purifies himself just as He is pure. In other words, the wonderful anticipation that you're going to see Jesus one day face to face is the greatest incentive to pursue holiness and Christ-likeness. Go with me back a few pages to Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12. To press in a little bit further in this. If you're a true Christian this morning, you can identify with this. Your desire is to be holy, to be like Christ. And Hebrews 12.14 says this, Pursue peace with all men, believers, and the sanctification or the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. There's a great caution, isn't it? If you are desirous, if you're not desirous of being holy or of being like Jesus, then you won't see the Lord. And obviously the implication is that you don't know the Lord if you don't have a desire to be holy. We will go through seasons of life. We have our imperfections and none of us have arrived, yes. But there should be a pursuit, a pattern, right? The issue is not perfection. It's your, the progression and the pattern of your life. And really the passion of your heart that you want to be holy. You want to be like Christ if you're a believer. But what a caution. Pursue peace with all men and the sanctification or holiness without which no one will see the Lord. What a caution for us to be holy, right? And the importance of it. Furthermore, if you and I are not seeking Christ-likeness or, or holiness, and this is part and parcel of the point of our text, then unity is going to be co- hard to come by. We will not be pursuing peaceful relationships with one another. And this is really what we want to consider today. Here in our text, really on the heels of having put forth Christ as the model to emulate, Paul now draws some practical implications for us about holy living that will help promote and preserve unity amongst us. 
So first and foremost, if you're taking notes, write this down. If you and I are going to preserve gospel unity, then we must walk in grace-fueled obedience. Walk and make a commitment to walk by the grace of God in grace-fueled obedience. That's in verses 12 and 13. Obedience obviously is critical, right, in the Christian life if we're going to grow, but it's also critical if you and I are going to have gospel unity in the church and experience the beautiful benefits of that. And quickly, what we'll see in these two main imperatives here, there's an imperative in verse 12, we'll see that in a minute, and an imperative in verse 14, and what we see with these two main imperatives is that if obedience can be accomplished, is going to be accomplished, it must be fueled and enabled by the grace of God. We'll see that. But as we know, right, as believers, God's grace, brethren, should not lead to an attitude that says, let go and let God in the Christian life. Far from it. People ask me over the years, is the Christian life essentially about resting in the grace of God or is it about running by the grace of God? Which one is it? Both, right? Good answer. It's both, right? Biblical Christianity is about resting in Christ in the sense that you're daily uh, uh, finding respite in the finished work of Jesus on on your behalf. If you put your faith in Jesus, yes. And that then fuels you to be able to run hard for Christ. To run hard in the Christian life and to walk in obedience to Him. And I want you to see this. Look at verse 12. So then, he's drawing some practical implications there with those words from the humble example of Jesus. So then, in light of the fact that Jesus has done what He has done, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence. And just stop there for a minute before we see the imperative. Let's pause there. Because I think that's significant how Paul begins this. He's going to say something really hard. And we'll look at that. But notice how he begins. And how he refers to them as my beloved my loved ones. That's a way of expressing His loving affection for these believers. He loves them. We've already seen that in the early verses of chapter 1. And He also affirms them, doesn't He? Essentially, loved ones, in the past you've had a pattern of obedience. You've obeyed, right? Ten years ago, presumably, when the church was founded, they were an obedient church. And He expresses even His optimism. He's convinced that they're going to obey in the present. Back in chapter 1, verse 6, he said, I'm convinced that He, God, who began a good work in you, will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. So this is an obedient church. And Paul wants them to know that he knows that. That by the grace of God, they've been obedient in the past. Paul is about to say some hard things to them, right? But I love this. He displays or or expresses his affection for them, brethren, by the way that he addresses them and he affirms them, right? Right? commends them for their past obedience. I think we glean a a helpful lesson here as we dive into this text. That is oftentimes, brethren, we're going to have to say hard things to our spouse and vice versa. We're going to have to say hard things to our kids or even kids to your parents as you grow older. Or we're going to have to say hard, hard things to our brethren. Right? That's necessary because of the reality of sin and weakness. And we want to see one another grow and so we're going to have to admonish nutheteo, that's part of one anothering, right? That we say the hard things, we confront, we exhort. We're going to have to do that, but do we equally make it a point to express our affection for others? 
the motive behind our words of exhortation? And not only that, but we do, do we affirm them? Do we commend them for the evidences of God's grace that we see in them? Because God is always at work, right? See, correction and admonishment are necessary, and that's needed because of sin, but we need to strike a balance by also expressing our affection, by affirming, practicing the, the, um, the one another of, uh, of affirmation, of commendation, of looking for the evidences of God's grace in the lives of our loved ones, those in our home and even in the church. And so Paul is about to say some hard things, but he expresses affection, he affirms them for having done what is right in the past. He has a biblical type of optimism that God is going to continue to allow them to obey in the future But now having commended them, he now strongly commands them. Look at verse 12. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, he says. You've obeyed in the past, but you need to continue to obey in the present and into the future. In other words, don't stop obeying. This is a command, an imperative. And the sense here in the middle voice in the original is, is you do this. You're responsible for this. It's a middle voice, imperative, present tense imperative. The command to work out there is a call to give maximum effort, to put work into your ongoing sanctification. The sense is that you are to be engaged in this pursuit. Now listen carefully, okay? With this imperative or exhortation, Paul is not calling them to save themselves. Yes, there's always the reality that somebody could be deceived, right? In any audience. And we're going to see that even that is an uh, an implication of this. But they are professing believers. He's affirmed even the good things that he's seen in them. So he's not calling them here to save themselves in this command or to keep themselves saved. As if, if they don't obey this, they're going to lose their salvation. That's not what he's talking about here. Scripture is clear that we cannot lose our salvation. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 5 says that we are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. If you're truly saved, if you truly possess salvation, you cannot lose it because you are protected by the mighty hand of God. Jesus said in John chapter 10, verse 28 and following, that no one can snatch you out of His hand and no one can snatch you out of the Father's hand who gave you to Jesus. So you can't lose your salvation. So this is not saying work out your salvation in the sense of of get saved, stay saved, or keep yourself saved. That's not what Paul is saying here. Writing under the inspiration of the Spirit. Instead, brethren, this command is a challenge to us not to take a passive approach in our pursuit of holiness. Furthermore, not to adopt a subtle, even imperceptible, sort of cavalier attitude of let go and let God. Right? A let go and let God kind of an attitude. Can I put it this way? This is a challenge for us not to treat God's grace as cheap grace. Because God's grace is a transforming grace. Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. Read that later on. The grace that saves is the grace that also sanctifies us. Amen? And sustain us, sustains us all the way until the end. Grace saves. Grace sanctifies us. Grace sustains us all the way until the end. It's all a work of God's grace. But he whom God saves, 
is going to show evidence of, of holy living. And you're going to desire that. It will be the passion of your heart, even if you have weaknesses and you will go through seasons of life where that will diminish. We always come back to wanting to be like Christ and be holy. This is a call, brethren, to actively and aggressively be pursuing Christ-likeness in the Christian life. And so you see, don't ever lose sight of your responsibility in that as a believer. In sanctification. And speaking of that, one of our greatest misunderstandings in the Christian life is forgetting the, the interconnectedness and yet distinction between the doctrines of justification and sanctification. Do you know the difference? They are interconnected but also distinct. Justification is a point in time. Once for all declaration by God that you are righteous in Christ. Do you hear that? Point in time. It's not a process. But a point in time. Justification is positional. Justification, if you want to put it this way, is a dot. A point in time. Justification is objective in the sense that it's outside of you. Subjective has to do with what you do. Objective means outside of you. That's why Luther referred to this as, as an alien righteousness that we needed from Christ. Outside of us. Justification is objective apart from anything we've done or can do. We cannot earn our salvation. We cannot work for our salvation. Justification is all God's work made possible only by and through the person and the work of the Lord Jesus. Amen? And His finished work. That's justification. Sanctification is a process. It's a running line, if you will, which begins at justification. But it's a running line continually. Sanctification involves our, our subjective, ongoing participation and submission to the Word of God. Or obedience to the Word of God. Sanctification is a process where you are to continually and aggressively be giving maximum effort in your pursuit of holiness. I can't tell you how important this is for you and for those who you minister to. And even counseling. This is so significant for your personal life and in your ministry to other brethren who you come alongside of. Seeing the interconnectedness of those two and yet the distinction. Paul understands this. And so he says, there's no such thing as a let go and let God kind of an attitude in the Christian life in sanctification. Work it out. And he commands them to. The sense here is, work out the implications of your already salvation. Because they profess to know Christ. Work out the implications of your already salvation. They are already saved. He's writing to them as already Christians, right? They've been adopted into God's family. If they put their confident trust in Christ... But Paul understands. He's a struggling sinner himself, saved by grace. So he knows by it from experience. And we see even this in Romans 7, where he writes about his own weaknesses. He knows as a struggling sinner, saved by grace, that with the passing of time in the Christian life, passivity, familiarity, laziness, complacency may begin to take root in the life of any believer, even the most mature believers. Hence, the exhortation. Stunting your growth because of complacency, passivity, familiarity with Christ and not an active pursuit. Succumbing to laziness and in so doing, stunting your development as a believer. Paul knows that this can happen in the Christian life. 
So he's saying, hey, put the work in. And notice that he adds the attitude with which we are to live out the implications of our salvation. He says, with fear and trembling. You see that? With fear and trembling. Those two words often appear together and are interrelated. And in this context, they don't mean fear and trembling as a result of God's wrath coming upon you as a believer. Or God's judgment coming upon you as a believer. We know that because we've been rescued from God's wrath. Jesus has taken God's wrath on our behalf if we put our our confident trust in Christ, right? So we know it's not that. However, I think too often overlooked is the fact that Christians are to live with a healthy sense of reverential awe for God. I think we often lose that. Proverbs chapter 1, verse 7. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Remember that verse? Proverbs chapter 9, verse 10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. More than anyone else as Christians, we're now equipped, brethren, to live with a healthy sense of respect and reverence and honor for the Lord from the heart. As our Heavenly Father is to be feared and reverenced and honored. Go with me to 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 17, okay? 1 Peter 1 and verse 17, because I think we often miss this. I hear Christians over the years talking about the fact that, well, it's not our job anymore to fear God. Well, I guess it depends on what you mean by that. In the sense of God's judgment and wrath that Jesus took upon Himself on your behalf, sure, I get that. But you should absolutely have a sense of reverence and awe for the Lord. 1 Peter 1.17 And if you address as Father, Christian, the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves, ready, in fear during the time of your stay on earth. Knowing that you were not Redeem with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood you were purchased as, a, as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. He's speaking to believers there, brethren. And he says, hey, in light of what it costs of the price, in light of the fact that Jesus gave His life for you, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. In the light of that, he says, you've been adopted into God's family. Live with a healthy sense of reverential awe for God. Because you are adopted into His family. Paul says essentially the same thing in 1 Corinthians 7, 1. Therefore, having, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves of all defilement of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. See that? Holiness, fear of God, go hand in hand. The person who is not walking in holiness or sanctification doesn't fear God. That is diminished in their life. Right? On the other hand, if you fear God, and you're cultivating a healthy sense of reverential awe toward the Lord, of honor for Him, of respect for Him, you will walk in holiness. You're going to want to be like Him. Reverence, holiness, and the fear of God in holiness. Go hand in hand. hand. Now, go back to Philippians chapter 2. And please pay special attention here, okay? With this exhortation or imperative or command, Paul is not saying here, hey, now that you're saved, you do the rest, Christian. You finish the job. Live by your own moral bootstraps. By your own self-generated effort, right? God started this thing, you finish it now. That's not what Paul is saying here. That's not what he's saying at all. Look at verse 13. You are to be holy 
and obedient. Why? Verse 13, for, here's the reason, it is God who is at work in you both to will and to work for His good pleasure. You see that? Huge. Huge for the Christian. This pursuit of holy obedience. Ready? Is a grace-fueled endeavor. A grace-fueled endeavor. In this pursuit of obedience, God grants both the will and the work for His good pleasure. He lavishly provides grace for both the desire and the duty. Both the desire and the ability to obey and to practice holiness for His glory and for our good. Otherwise, you'd permanently throw in the towel, right? Every time you're discouraged, that'd be it. You're done. What a shot in the arm. Every time, brethren, I come to this text and other related texts, it's like a shot in the arm for me as a believer. Because even just this week, I'm sure maybe you had those moments. Boy, I feel so inadequate in the Christian life. You had those moments? You're like, man, I want to be more obedient. I want to be more holy. I'm the one getting pummeled in private as I work through God's Word before I come to you, right? I always tell people that, Pastor, that was a really convicting message. I'm like, man, pray for me. I'm getting pummeled by the Spirit in private first. And I'm thinking, I'm so inadequate. I need the grace of God every single day. What a shot in the arm here. That the only reason why we are able to obey this command in verse 12, brethren, is precisely because we have in us the divine battery to obey. This, of course, is God the Holy Spirit. Right, who is responsible both for our justification and for our ongoing sanctification at the end of the day. Without Him, this would be impossible. Obeying this command would be impossible. And every other command in the New Testament to believers would be impossible if we didn't have the Holy Spirit to help us obey. He's a kind and gracious Heavenly Father, isn't He? Who never commands you to do something that He has not given you the ability, believer, Christian, to carry out in your life. He's like a a father who gives you all the tools necessary to get the job done in the backyard, right? Gives you everything that you need. Our Heavenly Father is the same. He gives us everything that pertains to life and godliness. He gives us His Spirit, His Word, brethren in the church who come alongside of you and you come alongside of them to be able to carry out by His grace obedience and and be holy, be set apart from sin unto Christ. So, it really follows then, right, that when we're walking in disobedience, it's because we're choosing to walk in disobedience. Think about that. Why is it at the end of the day that we don't obey the Lord? We don't walk in holiness? Well, it's not because we don't have the strength to do that if you possess salvation. It's because of the fact that we're choosing to walk that way. So you see, it's our responsibility to plug in to the divine energy source so that we can obey God's commands. Right? It's like, um, you know, a couple of weeks ago, I wanted to help my wife vacuum the living room, you know? Pretty busy time of the year, as you know, you ladies especially. So I want to be a good husband and vacuum the living room and we've had this one vacuum for about 10 years or maybe more than that actually and boy so i turn on the power on that thing and it doesn't turn on and i'm thinking what in the world is this another 150 dollars expense you know for the, the stinking vacuum maybe it's time to get a new christmas present called a vacuum right <laughs> so i turn it on i start inspecting this thing it's not turning on what do you think the problem was you know it wasn't plugged in so I go and I plug it in, 
right? You see the picture? Oftentimes in the Christian life, that's how we act, brethren. I can't do this on my own. I am inadequate. There is no way that I could do this. And God says, I've given you my spirit. Plug in. Walk by the Spirit. Yield yourself in submission to the Spirit of God. Go to my word and respond in obedience and I will give you the grace. 2 Corinthians chapter 12. You remember, Paul keeps asking, Lord, take away this thorn in the flesh over and over again. And essentially Jesus responds, I'm not going to take it away, but I'm going to give you my grace. My grace is sufficient for you. My grace is enough for you. My power is perfected in your weakness. That's the cry of our hearts as believers. We've been given the divine energy source so that we can obey God's commands. That's what it means to walk by the Spirit. And so spiritually speaking then, the ball's really in our court, brethren, for us to walk in holiness and in obedience. So let me ask you, have you succumbed over the years and maybe even in the present? Have you succumbed to to perhaps slowly, imperceptibly, you've succumbed to laziness in your life as a believer? Lethargy, complacency, passivity in your Christian life. And maybe you justify it. You know, I, I've been disappointed. A lot of discouragements, a lot of unmet expectations have caused me to just sort of want to throw in the towel. Or I've met professing believers who say, you know, the Bible reading, prayer, meditation, memorization, memorization thing, that thing doesn't work. It's not giving me the results that I expected, Right? which really reveals our hearts. Sometimes we can respond this way and stop pursuing Christ in our sanctification. We want to give up and throw in the towel because our so-called pursuit of God didn't yield the results that we thought as we defined those results. We didn't get those results that we wanted or expected. Listen, brother, sister, get back on the saddle. Amen? Get back on the saddle. And remember that you don't come to God because He needs you, but because you need Him. And you don't come to God because you add something to Him. Somehow you make Him sufficient. You come to God because He makes you sufficient. He is enough in Himself and makes you sufficient in Him. You don't come to God to minister to Him, right? to pour into Him, to invest into Him. You come to God so that He ministers to, to you. We need Him if we're going to walk in obedience and in holiness. And so if we want to walk in gospel unity even, we must walk in this grace-filled obedience. It's all the Lord working in and through us, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. Secondly, write this down. We must walk in gospel-promoting contentment. If we want to walk in gospel unity, we need to walk or live, conduct ourselves in gospel-promoting contentment. That's in verses 14 through 16. Gospel-promoting contentment is really at the heart of this second imperative here, a command. Look at verse 14. Do all things, he says, without grumbling or disputing. This digs even deeper now into the, the heart that we should have as we obey. In our obedience, in our doing of all things, by which he means holy living, obedient living, right? All things are to be done, he says, without grumbling. Literally, this is a very picturesque type of a word here. Literally, without an inner murmuring. Without an inner secret whispering in a low voice. I mean, he gets deeper than deep here, right? 
This is really here the type of secret, behind-the-scenes backtalk at God and at others in our hearts that we would be guilty of doing. And that right there, brethren, at the root level is sin. It's a type of inner murmuring that is a result of a, of a settled state of dissatisfaction with life. Maybe our circumstances are not what we'd like for them to be. Maybe our relationships are not what we would like for them to be. Maybe even our trials are not what we, would, we expected in life. Right? So we sin against the Lord by this internal, private type of murmuring or grumbling in our hearts. That, at the root level, brothers and sisters, is something we need to deal with and repent of before it finds expression outwardly. And he does go there. Notice, he adds, do all things without disputing. Here's, the, here's now the external expression of that inner, secret, private murmuring or grumbling of the heart. It includes divisive quarreling, disputing, combative strife amongst people a contrarian type of disposition or attitude that we can have towards one another. You know what disputing is? It's the outwardly always negative type of a person. The type of a person who has this insatiable need to always be expressing their disapproval and disagreements. They always see the glass half empty. They never see the positive in anything. Paul says if we're going to walk holy, then we need to deal with both the inward and the outward manifestation of the sin. In all things that you set yourself out to do, big or small, private or public, do all things without secret murmuring or public complaining. I want us to camp here for a minute, okay? Because you see, God knows our hearts, brethren. God knows our hearts. And God is not satisfied as our Heavenly Father with us just going through the, emotion, through, through the motions. God is not satisfied with us just sort of fleshing out this external modific, uh, behavior modification thing. Devoid of heart. External conformity with no heart worship and heart holiness and heart righteousness, practically speaking. God is not content with that. Half-hearted obedience is not God-glorifying obedience. It's incomplete obedience, which is no obedience at all. Obedience is doing what God says right away, all the way, and with the right heart attitude. Do you hear that? Obedience is doing, doing what God says right away, all the way, and with the right kind of heart attitude. Not grumbling or disputing. And some of us really need to watch ourselves in this regard. Seriously. You may be the type of a person who has a reputation for being the outward complainer. Are you that person? No matter what is going on, you always have something negative to say or contemplate on in your heart. Always, always not optimistic, biblically speaking. You may be that outward complainer type, or you may be the inward grumbler or murmurer. Either one or a combination of the two is sinful before the Lord. Yes? Either one. We can complain about our circumstances internally and then express those verbally to others or even to God. We can complain about our relationships. We can complain about why some people have something that we don't own or have. We can complain about politics and politicians even in our country, why we have this government around us, right? We can complain and grumble about decision-making in the church. 
We can complain about why others seem to know more than we do or why they seem to have, be better at something than we are. Talents, abilities, experience, even gifting. We can complain about even the way we look. Right? And we look with disdain on others because we wish that we look like that. And some of us air these things outwardly. Others of us just stew on them on the inside. Both are sin, brethren. And it begins with the heart attitude, right? With what's going on on the inside with this internal, private, secret murmuring and grumbling of the heart. This is why thinking is so important. And throughout the book of Philippians, we're constantly brought to this reality of be careful how you think. Be careful how you think about God. Be careful how you think about others. What are your contemplations like? What are your reflections like? What are your ponderings presently like? Toward God and towards others, beginning with your spouse, your kids, other brothers and sisters in Christ. How do you think about others? Remember what we saw in Philippians chapter 1? How does Paul think about his brethren? He's in jail. He should be whining and complaining about the fact that he's limited from a, a, a human perspective. Not doing all that he was doing, but what does he say? When I think about you, Philippians, and he's heard about the beginning signs of division, he says, when I think about you, I'm driven to prayer for you. I'm driven to gratitude on your behalf. He who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. Paul's a sinner saved by grace, brethren. By his grace, we're able to do the same thing. So both of these can be sinned against God if we're not careful. The inner and the outward or both recognize that God knows your heart. And listen, ultimately your sin of grumbling and complaining is not against people in and of itself. It's against who? Who? God. It's against Him who is sovereign over everything. Right? Remember the Israelites? Constantly grumbling and complaining at Moses. Why do we, even leave, why do we ever leave Egypt? What is this stinking stuff called manna again? Right? We want more meat. Wah, 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 right? Over and over again. What a, where's the water? I mean, you go on and on. Just, just do a study this next year as we read through the Bible together and the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament. Read about the experiences of the Israelites and just jot down all the grumbling and complaining. What kinds of complaints that they have? And what does Moses say to them? Why are you complaining against who? God. Exodus chapter 17, verse 2. Why do you put the Lord Yahweh to the test, he says. It's against Him. You're complaining against Him, not against me. The same with us, brethren. Our patterns of inner contemplative kind of grumbling and outward expressions of complaining are not ultimately against people. It's a you and God problem. There's something there that you need to repent of before the Lord. And it begins even with seeing God wrongly. That He somehow withheld something from you. James chapter 1, we've been studying that as men and women, right, in our small groups, says that God, our Father, only gives good and perfect gifts. So if God did not give you that particular thing that you want so bad, He's infinite in wisdom. We can trust Him, amen? We can trust Him. All of this then speaks of our need to cultivate contentment. Contentment. He'll get to this in chapter 4 just extensively. Talk about contentment. Discontentment is really the hard issue that leads to inner and outward complaining, right? Think about it. Contentment is a root cardinal virtue, brethren. 
There's so much that if you cultivate a, a heart of contentment, it's going to lead to all kinds of wonderful fruitfulness in your life. But discontentment leads to all kinds of problems in your life. Contentment is that inner spirit of peace and tranquility that says, God is enough. God is enough. If He has me in a particular circumstance, God is enough. He knows what's best, even if I don't fully understand, slice and dice what He's doing. I can trust Him. He is my fortress. He is my rock. He is my deliverer. He is my ever-present help in time of trouble. He is stable in an unstable world. My circumstances ebb and flow. God is the rock and the fortress. He is dependable. Amen? So I can trust Him. If He has me, He hasn't given me a particular thing, God is enough. I know my Father would never withhold anything good from me. I trust Him. If He hasn't given me that request, He who has unlimited wisdom and knowledge knows what is best. Amen? We can trust Him. This is contentment. In his wonderful little Puritan paperback, The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. Pick up a copy of that this holiday season. The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. Jeremiah Burroughs says this, Christian contentment is that sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit which freely submits and delights in God's wise and fatherly disposal in every condition. I love that. That's a definition within the framework of God is your heavenly Father. That's good, isn't it? That's contentment right there. We need to cultivate it. Now watch this. Why are both obedience and contentment so crucial? Right? Well, because there's a watching world at all times. Look at verse 15. He says, So that, here's the reason so that you might be blameless and innocent children of God above reproach. You see those three virtues there? Characteristics? Blamelessness, innocence, above reproach. All of those speak of, of an irreproachable, righteous, and pure character. In other words, be holy before a, a watching world. Why? Because you are children of God. I love that he calls them that. Children of God because it reminds them of who their father is and who our father is. In other words, you've been adopted into God's family. You have a father. His name is your last name, right? You have your father's last name. Act like it. Be holy. Be set apart. Reflect the character of your father. Represent him well. You know, I was adopted. I think I shared that during our trip here a few months ago. And some of you have heard my testimony. I was adopted. And right off the bat, I remember having a sit-down conversation where I was told about the expectations of being a part of the family with the last name Hernandez. There were expectations of what that comprised, being a part of that family. When we were saved by the Holy Spirit, brethren, this is what we signed up for, right? Holiness is part of who we are because our Father is holy. And we need to walk in holiness in that manner because the world is always watching, Right? To see if what what we profess to believe is really what we practice. To see if what we claim that we believe in is really the conviction of our lives. That we live in accordance with these principles. And all of this because God's reputation is on the line. And so let me ask you. Are you mindful, regularly mindful, even this holiday season, of the fact that you represent the King of the universe? Are you mindful of that? 
Even as you go shopping for Christmas gifts, have you noticed how impatient people are in the line? Have you noticed how people, there's some road rage going on right now? People cutting you off, right? Honking at you and all of that. What is our response to those things? Right? If you were in line at Walmart or wherever, could you say, hey, why don't you go ahead and go on in front of me? Try to shock somebody, right? In a couple of, tomorrow or whenever you go shopping later today. Hey, why don't you go before me? What? You're going to let me go first? Yeah, go for it. Why don't you go first? That's a very, very radical kind of thing in the eyes of the world, right? Holy living. If the world is going in a direction, busyness, stress, anxiety, right? Middle finger, hateful, acts or whatever. We go the opposite. We are set apart from that. Because our Father's reputation is on the line in everything that we do. The world is watching. And it's not going to be easy, right? Look at the middle of verse 15. It's not going to be easy to represent God well because we are children of God in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. That word crooked there, we get scoliosis from that word crooked. Scoliosis, as you know, is a condition where a person's spine is curved from side to side instead of straight, right? That describes our society, Paul says. It's crooked. It's not upright. And he adds, it's a perverse generation, a twisted generation, a demented generation. In some context, a foul generation. That's the idea of perverse. Boy, that's, that's a fact, isn't it? Look at the world around us. It's crooked. It's twisted. It distorts everything. It is demented. What are we seeing in our society right now? That we are distorting and perverting God's beautiful design of marriage between one man and one woman in a committed covenant marriage for life. Distortion, perversion, twistedness, crookedness. And I've told you before, right? Don't drink the Kool-Aid. It doesn't matter who's believing it. Wow, that person, they got three degrees? Even from Bible colleges. And they're, uh, who cares? I don't care how many degrees you got. If you go away from God's Word and you don't stand firmly by the truth of God's Word, you don't understand what biblical love is. Amen? Perversion of God's beautiful design for marriage. Perversion of what masculinity and femininity comprise of. The definition of those things. By the way, beginning second week of January, we're doing a workshop in here called Marriage 101, and we're going to talk about what biblical masculinity and femininity looks like. But the world around us distorts this, confuses things. We distort the biblical definition of love and what it means to love someone, right? We distort the definition of truth, what is reality, as opposed to what is falsehood. We distort what biblical justice looks like with a capital J. There's so much distortion and perversion, right? Paul says in the midst of this, you're to be different, you're to be set apart, right? You're to be different than the world. We are in the world, brethren, but we are not what? Of the world. Adopting the ideologies of the world. The thinking patterns of the world. The ideological fortresses of society. You are to be different. Look at verse 15. Among whom you appear as light in the world. Why are we to be different or set apart? For witness sake. Right? Because you are a light in the world, Paul says. In a twisted and dark world, Christians are often referred to as sons of light, as children of light. Matthew chapter 5, verse 14. Remember the words of Jesus? You are the light of the world. 
A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on the lampstand and put on, on the lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. And here's the application. Let your light, the testimony of your life, let your light so shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify who? Your Father who is in heaven. That's what we are, brethren. We are salt and light. You know, some of you were so gracious over the last few months to remind us of the fact that, hey, don't enjoy the summer too much, you know? So some good days you're experiencing, but it's going to get pitch dark, and then you might get a little sad, you know? People keep warning us, and we took that as, a, as a, a gracious wisdom imparted to us, right? So that we don't have wrongful expectations. You know what I found out? It does get dark at night now, right? <laughs> I mean, it is dark, and where we live, 1.5 miles up on this mountain, right, it even gets more pitch dark. So, as I'm driving up, I appreciate all of those people who have little lights all over their front lawns, right? And even on the streets and at the parks, all these lights, because I can see in pitch dark kind of conditions. Brethren, this is the society that we're living in. And God has us here to be salt and light, to be a divine preservative here in this world. Are you taking that seriously? To be a light, right? Shining in a dark place, morally speaking. Powerful charge. There is a watching world looking for reasons to discredit the cause of Christ. But when you and I walk in holy contentment, listen, we send a loud message to the watching world that Jesus is enough. That He is all that we need. Like that song says, All I have is Christ. Hallelujah. All I have is Christ. Is that the cry of your heart? Right? That if it wasn't for Jesus, I would have no hope. I would have no uh, reason to be joyful. And so this is gospel-promoting contentment here. Gospel-promoting contentment before a watching world. Notice also we do this by holding fast the word of life in verse 16. It's like the, the gospel is our flashlight, right? And essentially what Paul is saying here is live content, watching your conduct, and guarding the gospel. In other words, firmly grasping the light of the gospel. That's what he means by word of life. I think he's talking about the gospel because the gospel is a central theme in the book of Philippians. It's all about gospel progress. And then notice, once again, as he's done before, he gives them a personal motivation, doesn't he? So that in the day of Christ, walk this way, so that in the day of Christ I will have reason to glory because I did not run in vain nor toil in vain. I find it so interesting that Paul keeps appealing to them to live a certain way for the glory of God on the basis of also his special relationship with them. Remember back in chapter 2, verse 2? Make my joy, he says, complete by being of the same mind. In other words, complete my joy, brethren. If you love me, complete my joy too by walking in gospel unity. Right Here again, he's motivating them based upon his wonderful pastoral relationship that he has with them. And then he keeps reminding them that this world is not our home, that we are pilgrims. Why do you say that, Pastor Kempitz? Because this is the, the third explicit reference to the day of Christ. Right? Notice that? He mentions the day of Christ again. He mentioned it in chapter 1, verse 6. He mentioned it in chapter 1, verse 10. Why does Paul keep pointing them to the day of Christ? Because he wants them to live, brothers and sisters, in the light of the end. To know where things are headed. In the light of the culmination of, of all things, right? Listen, this is so important. It's the Colossians chapter 3, verse 1 mentality, right? 
that you guys walked through last year as a church. The reality that we need to set our minds on the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. The mentality that says, I'm a pilgrim just passing through this world. This world is not my home. It is so important that we understand, brethren, again, that it's not about the here and now. It's about the what? The then and there. That's why I think he keeps pointing them to this. To the day of of Christ. It's so important for us to remember this as believers. Listen, let me ask you. what What do you think this holiday season is your greatest need? In the midst of everything you see around you, people shopping, right? People asking for things, and maybe you've asked for some things. What do you believe is your greatest need? I'm going to tell you right now. It's not more possessions. It's not more money. It's not more stuff. Not more property. It's not more activity. It's not more influence or friendships. That's not your greatest need. It's not also uh, better government or better politicians. Brethren, our greatest need in the church personally and collectively as the culture of our church is that we be a holy church. That's our need. Why? For witness sake, before a watching world, and for the sake of preserving the unity of the gospel in the church. I've been praying that by God's grace, God will help us, brethren, personally, as families, as the culture of our church, that we be a sanctified, holy congregation. Amen? We need to be praying for the same thing. Even as we look to 2024 and we do our church Bible reading together, right? If you can jump on that for unity's sake, just for the sake of even reading and being able to share with other believers what you're reading. But listen to me. It's not just about the reading and checking off of some box, right? Joining some club. It's about being sanctified together as we apply the Word, as we be doers of the Word, not merely hearers who are self-deceived. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for the wonderful reminder that you are holy and that you desire a holy, sanctified people. Oh Lord, we pray that you will continue to help us in the midst of a wicked and perverse generation that we just witness every single day. We're reminded on social media, on television, in our interactions with others who don't know Christ. Father, we live in a crooked and perverse generation. We say amen to what Paul says here, writing under the inspiration of the Spirit. And we pray, Father, that you will help us to find courage in Christ and grace in Christ, to be people who are set apart, not in some self-righteous kind of a way, because everything that we have, we have from you, it's grace. So help us, Lord, in response to your grace, to be shaped and to be molded and fashioned by this pursuit of holiness. We pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.